Good morning. My name is Melissa and I will be your conference operator today. At this time, I would like to welcome everyone to the Energy Market Where Are We Now conference call. All lines have been placed on mute to prevent any background noise. If you should need assistance during the call, please press star zero on your telephone keypad and an operator will come back to assist you. Thank you. Mr. Mark Penziner, you may begin your conference. Thank you everyone for joining me today. Think of this as the next in what I'm calling an ongoing series of podcasts where I bring to you the most senior members of Alliance Bernstein to talk about the most interesting issues in the market today. Back in February, we spoke with Doug Peebles, our CEO, our CIO of the bond team. And we also spoke with Tara Thompson, our director of research on how to think about personal financial planning in such a turbulent market. Today, I'm joined by Deacon Turner to talk about the oil and energy space. To give you some background on Deacon, Deacon is a senior managing director at our firm based in Dallas. He joined the firm in 1998 as a financial advisor and has built much of his career working with executives and business owners in the energy space and has worked with a number of the largest private energy investors in the country. He's co-head of our targeted services investment committee and he's part of the management team for our energy opportunities fund. Deacon, thanks for joining me today. Happy to join, Mark. Deacon, so you live down in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and you spend a good deal of your time in oil country. You live with the price of oil every day, at the coffee shop, grabbing a drink on the local news. What's the mood by you today? <clears throat> well, I, I would say that uh, there's almost kind of a bifurcated world. The vast majority of people are obviously bemoaning the collapse in oil price. I think everyone here should be aware that since peak uh, pricing in 2014. We've seen a near 70% collapse in the price of oil. Uh, we've had some recovery since February, uh, which is you know questionable whether that has legs. And of course, really since going back to maybe 2013, natural gas has really been in the doldrums. And you know a lot of this is the effect of the massive investment and renaissance that we had in unconventional energy production, first in natural gas and then second in oil production where we are using you know horizontal drilling hydraulic fracking to harvest oil and gas from tight shale and sand plays and you know it had a remarkable impact the united states went from producing nearly 5 million barrels a day back in 2008 to at its peak nearly 10 million barrels a day haven't heard anybody talk about you know peak oil and running out of oil for a while and while prices stayed high it was like a, a rosy golden moment but as prices collapsed, especially here in the oil patch, you see a great deal of distress. Service companies going bankrupt, you're starting to see the, the front end of what's going to be, from our perspective, something of a slow motion train wreck in the space because after the period of boom where we had you know, more than $700 billion in public capital deployed, now you're seeing capital starvation. Um, the public markets have effectively shut themselves off to energy in both debt and equity. And now the, the private markets, particularly those led by banks, are going through very serious retrenchment. So all in all, uh, it's a very distressed time for a lot of people here in the energy uh, patch. Now, that being said, there's a small subset of people, which would include Bernstein, that sees a serious opportunity to provide capital in this time of drought. 
So, so let me just back up one step before we get into that. For, for many of the people on the line here, they're going to be in the Northeast, and, and we don't live with oil every day, except for some of the controversies in Pennsylvania and New York around fracking. Can you just, as a type of Energy 101, give the difference between what's thought of as conventional wells and conventional plays versus what you called horizontal drilling and fracking? Sure. It's, it's pretty straightforward. You know, if you think about it, for the first 100-plus years of energy production, um, it was pretty straightforward. You drilled a vertical hole into the ground, and with some technology applied to that, you harvested oil and natural gas and natural gas liquids from reservoirs that were underground. And the key element of conventional production is that the gas and oil flowed naturally by itself. It was free-flowing through the rock. The most important element to understand about unconventional production is that there's actually huge amounts of oil and gas that because of being captured in the crystalline formation of the rock, think things like shale, tight sands, and others, it can't flow naturally. And so what we've developed over the last 15 years, really, is the ability to drill into those formations, um, often horizontally rather than just vertically, so you can put much more lateral length into the formation. And then using various technologies, crack the crystalline uh, nature of the rock so that the oil and gas can flow freely. All this has been aided and abetted by uh, other elements of technology, such as real-time down the hole, meaning at the front end of the drill bit, information systems that let engineers and geologists know exactly where they're at underground, and has really, uh, you know, just magnified our ability to harvest oil and gas. It doesn't mean that conventional production is over. There's certainly plenty of opportunity there, but this is just a completely new tool in the toolkit. Is that is that clear, Mark? Yeah, I think that's perfect. So, so let me ask you the $10,000 question. What's Bernstein's forecast for the price of oil? Well, I would say that we're not really in the business of trying to make a, por- a point forecast for a specific moment in time about okay. where oil is headed. But we think it's important not to draw uh, you know, conclusions about where oil fits today in the same way that we cautioned uh, folks to not draw conclusions that oil was going to stay permanently high back at its peak in 14. The market tends to take the situation of the moment and project that forward. What people should really understand is that there are some very natural elements to the oil supply and demand curve uh, interaction that lead to a rebalancing in oil price. And I think, of course, you know, most people have gotten used to, prior to this price collapse, oil being priced you know, 80 to $100 a barrel, and a lot of myths developed around that in, in relationship to unconventional oil production that basically uh, said that if, if when oil falls below that price, we won't produce. Well, with the price collapse of the last 18 months, we've seen production stay very fairly flat, and that gives the lie that you need high cost, uh, high prices in order to, to drive production. That we've just become very efficient in the space. But what is true is that globally we need about $650 billion per year to be reinvested in the oil patch in order to maintain our production of about 95 million barrels per day around the world. So we, and need, what we, we need money flowing in so that we, 
that so the companies have the financing to to undertake what they need to do to get the oil literally out of the ground. Yeah, and if you think about it, it's not like gold or something that can sit in a warehouse. We pump oil out of the ground, which depletes the existing reserves, and then we burn it. And so we have to constantly drill new wells and find new fields. Or we have a natural 8 to 10 million barrel per day decline in production worldwide. And that's in relationship to an oversupply that's caused this price collapse of only about 1.5 million barrels a day. So when you put it together and you actually do the research, one of the things you can identify is in 2015 and 16, more than $400 billion worth of capital projects have either been canceled or, permanent, or, or significantly delayed. And so what we see, back to your original question, where's the oil price headed? We see that that lack of reinvestment is, gonna, is going to firm up, significantly firm up the supply side of the equation for oil, probably going into mid-2017, which should drive us back consistently into the 40s, if not higher. Now, the other side of that equation is that because unconventional oil and gas production has become so productive, once you get into the 50s and 60s particularly, you would see very large amounts of wells drilled and production come on that start to act as a significant governor to sustain price increases above the 60s. And so our perspective is, is that for the next, you know, for the foreseeable future, think out 10 years, barring a major supply disruption, like, uh, you know, instability in the Middle East or collapse of Venezuelan production or something like that, oil should be range-bound between 40 and $60 a barrel, which is actually kind of a Goldilocks point for onshore U.S. production. So you mentioned the Middle East having an impact. Let me just transition from there when you talked about a 40 to $60 range. If oil was where it was a few months ago, high 30s, in that range. Can energy companies make any money with oil at these prices? Yes, they can. Not every company. Now, one of the, and, and one of the important points to know about Bernstein is that over the last few years, we've actually undertaken one of the largest research efforts ever in the history of the firm to protect our clients' assets that were exposed to oil. And if you've, if you've noticed, over the last two years or so, we've had significant premiums in equity, investment grade, and high-yield debt because we did the hard work of analyzing every unconventional well drilled in the United States going back to 2005 and then 200,000 other vertical penetrations, so nearly 400,000 wells in total, to form our own opinion on what was happening in the oil patch. Because unfortunately, you can't rely upon the public statements of publicly traded companies since, in our opinion, the situation is a little analogous to the mortgage world of the mid-2000s, where, you know, far too much success is being declared by people who are actually not that stable. We went out and tested that ourselves and came to a very much more parsimonious viewpoint as to what was happening. It allowed us to get out of the way, not making a call on price, but just recognizing the fragility of the market, get out of the way of the subsequent price collapse. So it's hugely beneficial for our clients. So, One byproduct so, of that, though, Mark, is that down to the individual acreage section block for every basin in the U.S., and by tracking the history of drilling, we know those companies and feel comfortable identifying those companies who can make money at today's prices. And there's actually a fair number, um, particularly on the small private side of the, uh, uh, of the ecosystem. 
So, Deacon, this uh, research project, I, I know we've termed it Bertha. Can you give a little bit more color about the output of that? What, what is distinctive about, I've got to assume lots of firms are doing research on, on the oil patch, but can you talk about a little bit of the process of the research that was done and what the outputs are that, that has led to our outperformance in this space and, and could be leverageable going forward? Sure, and I would say that while lots of people do research, to my knowledge, no one has achieved anything like this. And I can say this as having spent better part of the last year and a half, two years, really focused on the Bertha research effort with private energy companies here in Oklahoma, Texas, Colorado, and the like. And they're flabbergasted by what we've done. You should understand that most research, most assessment in the oil patch is based on statistically sampling, say a set of 100 to 200 wells for a company or for a given basin to form average type curves and form, think of it as a heat map where you could identify where the best acreage is, the weaker acreage, and then the tertiary acreage. The problem with that is that oil and gas production is non-parametric. It doesn't follow a normal distribution curve. And it was that recognition that led us to go intensively to every well drilled. So for instance, if you were to look at the Bakken, which is a formation, famous formation in northwestern North Dakota, a typical reserve analysis would, would maybe statistically sample 200 wells there. We've actually completed a census of all 12,097 wells drilled and producing in the Bakken, which gives us a radically different viewpoint as to what's happening. The same with places like the Permian in West Texas, where we have uh, <clears throat> analysis of more than 60,000 individual wells. And so I think it's a degree, so it's a scale and scope issue. It's actually the biggest data project at Bernstein. We've got more than 25,000 person hours in, in the analysis, 30,000 lines of proprietary code to help us with it. And every single month, we gather the data from the industry, you know, coming from the state tax commissions, oil and gas commissions, to update and refine our model. And so I think, I think that in and of itself is very different. And it really takes a firm of serious scale to achieve that. I would say one thing that makes us different on that point, too, is that, you know, who else is going to do this? Most of the large investment banks could achieve it, but they've been feeding at the trough of $100 billion of new debt and equity issuance every year. So it wasn't in their interest to question, you know, the public statements of the oil and gas companies. And I would say, you know, some of the larger, more quantitative hedge funds could probably achieve it. But they're always looking for ideas to make money. We were doing it originally just to protect the $50 billion we already had in client assets. And so I think we were somewhat uniquely positioned in creating Bertha over time. And it's led to us having what we think is a really important advantage in valuing the market today. So let me zoom out for a second. Uh, you talked about, I'm thinking of it as feeding the beast, right? Capital's got to keep going into the energy space because people have to continue to drill to replace the production. If you're an oil producer or you're an energy company, I I'm guessing you go to the bank for that money, but there's been a lot of talk about how bank lending standards have gotten more difficult across the board and that given that some of the energy companies are thought of as um, more risky investments than other investments a bank could make or other lending the bank could make. I, I would guess that there's this, and I've heard you talk about this, confluence of bank, regu bank regulation, energy prices falling, that is creating, A, an opportunity, but B, also challenges for the energy companies to get capital. So can you just walk through 
mechanically what's going on and, and how that creates an opportunity? Sure. And, you know, I, I know you've got a bunch of folks from uh, the East that are probably very used to dealing with the real estate world. Yep. Probably the best analogy you can make is this is somewhat analogous to the real estate environment, particularly commercial real estate environment of 2008, 9, and 10, where you have a real collapse in pricing, you have uh, a, a curtailment of capital, and that affects everyone, the good and the bad. And everybody assumes, you know, the lenders are assuming now that everybody uh, is a bad credit. And we all know that real in real estate, not everybody with a bad credit, and if you could successfully deploy capital in that time frame, you had some of the best returns maybe in our generation. Um, for people who could separate wheat from chaff, identify the quality projects and the quality operators, and to give capital to real estate. The same thing's happening here. So, so you don't have to necessarily buy distressed, right? You can you oh. could have just bought in 2008 a really good property in Manhattan or elsewhere that was just colored by a bad market. That's exactly right. And, you know, investors operate in the cycle of fear and greed. And what's happening right now is people see low energy prices. They're going to see some spectacular bankruptcies. And so the natural reaction, the knee-jerk reaction of most investors would be to yank capital away from the energy space. Well, that sows the seeds of its own recovery, right? Because the bad actors get washed out. If you can identify the high-quality producers with the best low-cost acreage, not only, not only do you win with them, but you actually get significant upside as prices recover. And so it's a win-win. You help the best companies stay in business. You get upside there. And it and it gives you know basically becomes a, a a long term opportunity and you can you can achieve that across the spectrum of risk from senior secured loans I mean if you look at how we exploit this at Bernstein it's how we've oriented our equity portfolios our investment grade our high income portfolios using this Bertha framework uh, we're in the process for accredited investors extending our our private middle market opportunity into a vehicle for them this summer that has up to 30% of its capital deployed into the energy space, mostly senior secured and Unitronch. And then for investors with the wherewithal to achieve it, we run a, a portfolio uh, that's more risk-oriented and return-oriented um, that goes into the less senior parts of the cap stack and can focus on equity in these folks. So we've got kind of a full range that we can achieve this, and we as a firm see this as probably one of these, like a generational moment to deploy capital. So is that is that across the board, right? I, I would assume that this impacts, but my assumption may be incorrect here, the Exxon and Chevrons of the world differently than it does the small guys, or is that not true and it's across the board? Because I would think the big guys have better access to credit markets than others, so are the opportunities more concentrated, or is this uh, is it not really dependent on the size? How, how does one think about this? No, I think, I think you're hitting a very good point. As the public markets cut back, it's the biggest, most stable companies that tend to keep their capital lines open. They may charge more, but the Exxons and Chevrons in the world aren't in danger of going away anytime soon. They may have structural issues long term because the cost of their projects is so high but they're not going away anytime in the near future. It's the smaller, more concentrated companies um, in, the, in the exploration and production space, in 
uh, MLP, you know, get oil and gas pipelines. It's those companies that are going to see the most distress. And when it comes to banks cutting off capital, if you think about this and how banks operate, a bank is unlikely to completely cut off an EOG or a Continental because they're large, they're likely to engage in transactions going forward, and they can be a serious revenue source for the banks. It's the smaller, truly middle market oil and gas producer who is likely to be savaged. And that's who that's where we see the biggest opportunity. Of course, it comes with the most risk. In the in the public high yield space, the situation is the same, where the larger, better uh, <laughs> financed companies have not sold off as much. But even there, the distress is bad. I mean, you see when you see Anadarko and Continental fall into junk status, that may represent a huge opportunity because they're unlikely to go away as companies. They have very solid assets with, with decent prospects long-term. And so that may be a classic situation where by waiting in um, and being patient with your capital, you can get an outsized return. So how much do those middle market players matter in the space or what percentage of the market are they? Because I, I think for us here, you think of the names you mentioned and BP and Hess, and, and you just think, you know, the energy space is 10 behemoths and that's it. But I was down in Houston two weeks ago for business and, and you see on every office tower, a hundred different oil companies I've never heard of, right? So can you just mention for people who aren't down there, the size of that middle market space? Well, let's put it this way. There are 9,500 producers in the U.S., Mark, <laughs> and, and less than 500 can even think about public capital. So that, that tells you what the middle market looks like. Think of it as 9,000 producers. So a few quick questions. It's, hugely fragmented. it's a hugely fragmented environment. It's true the behemoths dominate production, but they're, you know, not much more than 50%, depending on how you slice it. There's a huge amount of production that comes from the, you know, second, third, fourth generation family oil and gas company um, in, you know, southwestern Oklahoma. Yeah, see, I, I would say that I think that's a shocking statistic for for most. Um, Look, it'd be like saying it would be like saying that General Reed dominates the real estate space. Right. It's true. Right. They've got a lot of big properties, but the real estate space is so fragmented that just a few behemoths is never going to control the market. And right. There's a lot of people who can make a very good living who don't have to be of their scale. That is exactly right. Uh, so a few questions to wrap up. If people are thinking about some of the things you said and you say, okay, so oil is going into the 40 to 60 space, and, and I know that's not a hard forecast, and you're thinking about other ways to play the space. But if someone says, well, I think he made a compelling case and I can wait a few years, why do they or do they not just buy the oil ETF and, and wait in it? Well, I mean, that's a strategy. Right. But but you got two problems with that. The ETF is dominated, for the most part, on a market cap basis by the biggest producers. And it is very tied, highly correlated to oil beta, so the price movement of the oil. Price, yeah. And we look at, across most approaches that we have, we would want to take a, let's call it a risk-adjusted approach, where we don't think about just taking on oil beta, but where we can get a significant coupon along the way, as we would do in our high-income strategies or in our BDC or our, our, our uh, qualified purchaser investments. 
where you can potentially hedge your pricing if you get a good day. Let's say, let's say oil moves into the 50s and you have successful investments. One of the things you could do at that point is hedge so that if you had a price down, you're not greatly affected and you've, you've locked in your return. So there's a host of strategies you would want to grab rather than just investing in oil price because there's no guarantee, by the way, that you get a speedy recovery. And if, for instance, OPEC and non-OPEC does get into a continued production war, you could, for a period of time, see some sustained pricing in the lower part of the spectrum. And if people get fed up with that and capitulate, you could see your ETF really get pounded. Right. So it sounds like, and I know I'm teeing you up here, but if, but if there are people on the call or investors who are thinking about excess capital, money that they don't need, that they can take on an illiquidity premium for, that the energy space provides, I'm careful to use this term, a generational type opportunity like real estate did eight years ago. Yeah, I, I absolutely believe that. I mean, I, I, we're clearly moving to exploit that in multiple ways at the firm. Um, I don't think you have to rush out immediately to make those decisions, right? I think you, there's some little timing here. And I think you have to be prepared for a few things. First of all, I think you have to be prepared to have a time horizon beyond three years in order to harvest this win. And that same thing applied to the real estate situation of 09, right? You had to be prepared to be in for a while. And I think the same thing applies to oil and gas. If you can cross that hurdle, whether it's in equity or debt or a combination, I think there's going to be a number of different investment opportunities that um, could appeal to investors and, and give them a chance to grab this moment. And, and you don't have to do it by solely placing your chips on the price of oil. You can get access to it in a more thoughtful way than just, pardon the expression, betting on the price of oil, much like the real estate play. You would have been fine if you just bought broad real estate, but if you picked some really premier properties at, at great pricing in 09, you could have hit an absolute home run. That's right. Deacon, let me say thank you for your time. We've gone over as, as uh, our allotted time. And, and let me just say, for people who have an, an interest in this space and want to get a feel for, for what's actually going on on the ground, as an aside, there was a great History Channel show or series documentary called Boomtowners that you can probably get on demand or on your Apple TV that if you want to get a feel firsthand to what's happened in the space and what it's like out in the Bakken in North Dakota, I would absolutely suggest that. No, um, with that, I'll say... With that, thank you. If you have any questions, feel free to follow up directly with me. And uh, Deacon, thank you for your time. Yeah, happy to. Thank you all. This concludes today's conference call. You may now disconnect.